Hello, and welcome to On Meaning. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. This week's episode is an interview with Emmy Van Derzen. For those not familiar, Emmy is a philosopher and existential psychotherapist who has had a very long and illustrious career. In addition to doing private practice, she was also principal of the New School of Psychotherapy and Counseling at the Existential Academy in London. Her overall list of publications and titles is far too long to exhaustively go through, so I'll make sure to link to her website and some other resources in the show notes. I really enjoyed this conversation on a number of levels. It was a pleasure getting to chat with Emmy as her work has been influential on the way that I think about meaning, especially in the last year or so as I've gotten deeper into existential therapy. We started the conversation with the cycle of ideology that she mentions early in her book, which is called Psychotherapy and the Quest for Happiness, specifically talking about why this cycle is a good place to start a larger quest for happiness. We then shifted to Emmy's breakdown of the four dimensions of life before wrapping up with a short discussion on the topic of emotions. One thing that was mentioned early on was the importance of embracing complexity in life. The journey of finding and refining meaning is by no means a simple one, and anyone offering a simple solution is, at least in my opinion, is either naive or possibly trying to sell you something that definitely won't solve all of your problems. Emmy mentioned the idea of looking at life as a jigsaw puzzle. We don't have to expect to figure out everything right when you start, but if we focus on the individual pieces of learning and growth as we keep filling out and adding to what will hopefully become a complete picture of our lives, then it's possible to start being more intentional about leading a fulfilling life. That journey to find and refine meaning is one that doesn't have a general starting point. I appreciated how Emmy talked about needing to start with, at least when she's working with patients, to start with whatever is presenting the biggest challenge to them. Needing to work the hardest for the most impactful elements seems generally on point with, you know, the whole life thing. As Emmy said, we have to find the courage to face the challenges of life. And recognizing that difficulties in dark times are unavoidable and trying to turn those kind of negative emotions or any of those challenging areas into opportunities for learning and growth is something that we can do if we're willing to be vulnerable and if we're willing to commit to a continuous and carefully assessed journey of self-improvement. I think back to my own childhood, going through public schools in, in New York City, especially in Brooklyn, in the 90s through, the, uh, through around 2001, when my family had moved to New Jersey. And I remember thinking back to a general attitude and outlook that was heavily influenced by consistent positive thinking and really just focusing on the positive. And that came up in my conversation with Emmy and talking about how positive psychology uh, had influenced general thinking both around education and more broadly in Western, especially American society. One thing I definitely lacked in any form of schooling was getting the chance to learn how to find comfort in discomfort. It's not an easy thing, and it's something I still have to consistently force myself to do in some way, but I am hoping that it'll become more of a learned habit eventually. But again, for now, it's still a lot of intention and a lot of work. And as covered in this interview, it's important to learn to embrace ambiguity and discomfort in all four of the dimensions of life that will break down with Emmy. But at a high level, the four are physical, social, personal, and spiritual. Hopefully I'll get a chance to speak with Emmy again, because we definitely did not have a chance to give her views and work on emotions the time it deserves, and that <laughs> I just want to speak with her about. Regardless, we did get to touch on the importance of working through our own emotions and developing a deeper understanding of them in order to be able to lead a happier and more fulfilling life. We also ended on a note that I very much appreciated. Given the duality of emotion, even our darkest moments do have their own counterparts. It's up to us to maintain the hope that we can actually find those counterparts. And now, here's the interview. All right, Emmy, thank you so much for joining us today. To start off the discussion, do you mind just saying your uh, full name and professional title? Yeah, so my name is Emmy van Dersen. I am a professor with Middlesex University in psychotherapy and psychology, and I am the principal of the new School of Psychotherapy and Counseling, which I founded in London. 
Great. Thank you for providing that. And we'll make sure to link to some of the uh, specific information to, to the various groups you just mentioned. But for the purpose of our discussion today, I actually wanted to pick up with something that you mentioned pretty early in your book, Psychotherapy and the Quest for Happiness. And within that book, you include this cycle of ideology. Uh, and I can definitely link for the listeners in case they want to see this. But it's roughly a cycle that uh, goes uh, that mentions the the transition of ideals through religion, myths, beliefs, values, conduct, aspirations, and kind of completing a circle coming back to ideals there. And I, I just thought this was a very interesting place to start this broader discussion of uh, the quest for happiness. So, as a direct first question, why did you see this kind of cycle of ideology as the right place to start exploring happiness? Hmm. Well, it's not just about exploring happiness, really. It's about working with people as a therapist and having realized that what, what really makes all the difference is how people approach their lives and how they approach their therapy. So if they're focused on just factual things and information and science, they will have one kind of approach and one kind of worldview if they focus on their emotions or their impressions or their dreams, they're going in a different direction. And if they want to kind of make sense of everything, if they want to find meaning, then it really is crucial that they learn to see how all of these things connect and how one thing leads to another and how in order to have a complete life and a complete understanding of ourselves, we do need to visit all of those different posts along the way, and we cannot just select one or two of them. So I wanted to represent it as a kind of landscape that is circular, where you know things lead from one thing to another. But of course, you can also go across that territory and you can visit any of those elements whenever you want to. But the point is that human existence is complex and that very often people try to make it simpler. And by trying to make it simpler, they often start missing out on some of that richness that helps us find meaning. And so is it fair to, to take away from what you just said, the idea that in order to understand the complexity of your own happiness, or even specific looking at the role that meaning is playing in, in that greater discussion, that you must look at how, say, your meaning in life relates to large questions like uh, religion or, or cultural myths, all the way down to your own conduct, your own aspirations, and really figure out what it means in all of these areas, not just the specific area. Yes, well, I'm not suggesting that everybody has to learn about all of that straight away. Life is more like a kind of puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, there are all these different pieces. And the more of the pieces you can put together, the more meaningful the picture becomes. And the more information you have about all that, and the more it makes sense to you, the easier it is to have a sense of accomplishment and a sense of satisfaction about the world. And the less we know and the more confused it is and, and the more those pieces are kind of, you know, in a mess, chaotic, the less people feel life has meaning and the more confused they get. So, yes, a process of therapy is always about trying to gather as many of those pieces as we can and put as many of those together as people can manage. But of course, sometimes people can only manage a small bit of the picture. But that is sometimes enough to get going, if, especially if you're very young. And then to know that the rest of your life, you will be gathering up more information and gradually understand things better and better. And I, I realize the the answer to what I'm about to ask might be as straightforward as it depends. But broadly speaking, do you see, uh, you know, as you mentioned, for folks who say are, are at the beginning of their journey of consciously thinking about this, they're in their teenage years, they're in their early 20s. Do you think that focusing on certain aspects of this cycle are a are sort of a, a very good or suggested starting point, or is it just so individually based that it's hard to generalize? Mm, 
Well, it does depend. It depends on what has happened to you in your life and where you're kind of finding your obstacles and your difficulties, because it's always best to get puzzling in terms of the things that are problematic to you. So I would always begin with a person in the exploration of what is most difficult to them and most upsetting to them. But then actually, as we as we focus on that, and that might be anything, so that might be their physical existence, it might be their political understanding, it might be problems with their family, it might be problems in finding a loving relationship, it might be a lack of self-esteem, it might be a sense that nothing is worth living for, or it might be that some terrible things have happened and so they've become deprived, say they're homeless or they, they're adducted, uh, addicted to particular substances, or they basically despair about themselves because they have experienced a lot of failure or a lot of misery in their lives. Well, that is where I have to start. But in that process, as we enter into the shadow side of their life and we try to understand how some of this fits together and does make sense, we also discover the other side to that. And and the person is reminded that there are always some good things in their lives and there are some strength in their character and there are some amazing Uh, pieces of learning that come from their difficulties and their past experiences. And so we're not only trying to solve the problems, but we're also trying to see what good things have come with those problems and what strength this person can build on and how they can sort of gradually piece all of this together and where it fits, you know? Yeah, and it seems so appropriate that the idea of, you know, where where does a, a longer commitment to a journey of exploring one's happiness and meaning that uh, the, the right place to start is with what seems most difficult and that you have to work through that before you can possibly let, yeah, that, that seems very uh, so appropriate for that general metaphor of how to find happiness in life more broadly. Yes, because it's always paradoxical and it's always about tensions in life. And the more you are willing to see that there's always two sides or many sides to everything and that therefore you need to learn to go around the houses and explore the different aspects of something. And the more you dare to do that, the the more you can get a sense of how things fit together and the stronger you will feel for it and the braver you will feel for it and the less afraid you will be of the adversity that you will inevitably experience in your life and that so many people are afraid of when they come to therapy. Almost inevitably, they wish they would be happier and that they wouldn't have to deal with difficulties anymore or upsets anymore. And the first thing we need to do is to find a kind of courage back, a courage to face up to the challenges of life, because when we know that life is about solving problems, overcoming difficulties, and not being afraid of those new challenges, then it becomes easier straight away. And even the person might get this feeling of being on an adventure, you know, even when things are difficult, and of having to find greater expertise, greater strength in themselves in order to meet that adventure in the right way. And they can take pleasure in that, even sometimes when it is at its hardest, because life becomes an exploration of how we can make life work better for ourselves. And we can discover that we can always improve on it. We can never be perfect, but we can constantly improve how we are alive and how we do this mysterious thing of being a human being. And I actually just finished the book uh, Courage to Create by Rollo May, and I still have yet to read some of Paul Tillich's work on, on, on especially the use of the word courage specifically when thinking about some of these concepts and just being willing 
both with yourself and with others to have that, uh, the, the vulnerability that's inevitably part of digging into these questions uh, is something that, especially in, you know, Western U.S. society uh, or American society is just so not framed correctly in every stage of upbringing and cultural expectation and norms. Uh, so I, I I wonder what a healthier version of teaching people how to take on that courage and be willing to be vulnerable for these journeys, what that looks like in, in the young years. Very, very good. Yes, it's, it's very true, isn't it? That whole positivistic outlook and, you know, even with positive psychology that has become a completely normalized thing that we must search for the positives when actually to get really good at living, you've got to be able to see that every light also has a shadow. Everything that has a light thrown on it casts a shadow. Look at, you know, where I'm sitting, lights and shadows. It's just how it is. And we can't survive without the shadow sides. We can't constantly be alert and be exposed to the light. We have to go to sleep and we have to be in the darkness. And sometimes it has to be winter so that seeds can germinate again and new things can grow. And if we're constantly only seeking for one side of things, then we never really find that balance. We never learn to walk. You know, walking is about having two feet and balancing things out, putting our weight on one side and then on the other side. That is what creates the forward movement, not to stay steady and strong just standing on your feet. If you want movement, you've got to be prepared to unbalance yourself and not to be afraid of that, but to enjoy that sense of movement and that sense of the balance shifting all the time. And then you can even learn to dance with it and enjoy that. Yeah, and I remember, my, so my, I was born in the former Soviet Union uh, right at the tail oh, end, and my you? family immigrated here when I was a little kid. And so I remember a very interesting dichotomy growing up where in schools it was, oh, it's okay, just be happy, and that that's what you should strive for. And then at home it was, you know, I, I bring home, even in the times when I would bring home, a, you know, a near-perfect grade, the immediate response is, well, why why isn't it perfect? You know, you, you missed something. And just seeing, you know, growing up in a home where it was such a, a stark contrast contrast was uh, now looking back on it, I can say how, that it was amusing. But it, it, it is so interesting how uh, I can relate to what you're saying in terms of my own mental health journey and really committing to the journey and going deeper on it in kind of my late 20s and early 30s is learning how to be comfortable in discomfort and learning how to commit to a, a journey without a clear end or without a clear milestone along the way and recognizing that things will be uncertain. Yes, and to expect that, you know, to wake up in the morning and think, well, what are the challenges that will be thrown at me today? Not just planning, you know, what you know will happen, but to be open and prepared to the problems you will have to solve. And instead of balking at it, welcoming that and knowing that in that process, you will make new discoveries and in that process, you will grow. Very interesting about your background, Eugene. I had no idea, but that is really going from one world and one worldview to a completely different one. That's that's quite a big stretch in your lifetime, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It's definitely very interesting to to contrast those elements. And I know when we got here, I was fourteen months old. So you know, for uh, for all intents and purposes, I, I was just about born here, uh, or, or just missed that rather. But you know, my sister was nine years older. Obviously, my family. You know, my mom, my dad. Uh, they were already in, you know, in their 40s when coming over. So I'm sort of the one that gets to be a little bit, you know, a little bit first generation, a little bit still immigrant. And, you know, depending on the time, I've been able to kind of lean into and learn from both of those sides. Yes, but I'm sure they have raised you in a rather different way than a lot of your friends were raised. I'm sure you have read a lot of authors like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and, and that in itself is a great introduction to this kind of way of thinking about life, isn't it? To explore the dark side of humanity and, uh, and the difficulties people are thrown into. Th that must be more familiar to you than many of your 
contemporaries in the United States. Yeah, especially being of Russian Jewish background, specifically, you know, with a, a generation that was very much, you know, through their life, World War II was such a massively impactful, significant moment in time that just the actual effects of the war, the after effects of, you know, Soviet Russia post-World War II, you know, my, my family, and, you know, this happened to my sister as well. I'm just too young to to remember any of these, but, you know, growing up, without actually, you know, going into a store and shelves are empty or having to wait online for milk in the morning and these kinds of things that for me as someone who has spent my entire conscious life here in the U.S. can seem so foreign. Yes. And I see that now in my sister's kids and certain, you know, folks from uh, the true first generation Americans where, oh man, not everyone has a big house internationally. And, you know, it's these things of privilege where it's like, well, let's, <laughs> yeah, let, yes. let's, yes. Let, let's make sure to be intentionally uncomfortable as part of your upbringing so that you recognize where is your privilege versus what's actually. It's really important to travel and to experience how other people live. And become aware that, you know, to live in the assumption of wealth or that things will always be available to you is extraordinary. It's not normal that there are very many more people in the world who really struggle and live in difficult conditions and therefore are actually closer to these existential principles. Because when you start to take life so much for granted, and you expect there to be food always, you lose the connection with what it means to actually earn your keep and to work for your living and to actually take things from the land and to process them and to be able to enjoy them properly when you eat them instead of just processing them and have them as commodities. These, these things do really help you putting those pieces of the puzzle together because it makes you aware of the true value of things rather than kind of having that skewed and take so much for granted. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I, I really uh, appreciated you starting, you know, the the discussion in your book, Psychotherapy and the, and the Quest for Happiness with that cycle of ideology very early on, because I, I at least the, the way I had read it was that in order to properly think that through, it immediately forces you not just to think of those concepts, but you're also kind of immediately forced to think of, well, all of this applies on a personal level, on a immediate community level, as well as a broader world level, and sort of start focusing on not just in my life and, you know, it forces you to zoom out and well, what, what is generally happening in the world and what is the interplay yes. across those elements? And that is so important because if a person comes to therapy purely to dig into their internal world and to see everything in terms of what has been done to them and, you know, how to heal themselves or how to cure themselves of their sadness then they're missing out on so much of the context. And it is much more empowering for a person to realize what role they play in the world now. And as you said, you know, not just in their own life, but with their parents, with their siblings, with their friends, with their neighbors, in their town, in their country, in their, on their continent, in the world, and to ask themselves questions about that, not just to trace where they are coming from, but also to ask themselves, so where do I situate myself now in relation to all of that? And what about that challenges me to determine for myself how I want to approach that and where I want to take that in the future? What is going to be my purpose about that in life? What do I want to do about it? How do I want to change myself? And how do I want to relate and maybe contribute something to this broader, wider world? And I know one of the sort of ideas that you put forth in, in a number of pieces of your work uh, with sort of your, your the four dimensions of life that you provide the breakdown of. Mm. And I've heard, you know, uh, sort of a number of different approaches towards that same thing with self-other world being one that I, I frequently come back to, but especially in the context of meaning and happiness and these more specific discussions around that, it just seems as though the way you break it down provides such a wonderfully neat foundation 
for how to think of, well, even with everything we just talked about, there are still different elements of life within which you should think of, you know, where should I be uncomfortable? Where am I finding the purpose in these other questions? So I guess to set the stage for this kind of next portion of, of questions, do you mind just providing uh, an overview of what you see as these four dimensions of life? Absolutely. So, yes, there are quite, as you say, there are quite classic dimensions. In fact, since you mentioned your Jewish background, you will recognize that they are in the Kabbalah. There are four worlds in the Kabbalah. And it's like, okay, that is just one way to cut the cake of being. We have to find a way to get a grip on life and to be systematic in our understanding and our engagement with it. So, I've just chosen to have this four-part division because it's like the four quarters of the hour. It's like the four seasons. It comes back in so many ways. Four gives you a balanced way of dividing things up. So they are basically the physical world, the social world, the personal world, and the spiritual world. And that is not enough. What we then do is, well, actually link it first with the Jungian ideas about the four functions. So you can see that we find ourselves as a body in relation to a physical environment at that first level of our physical existence. And what we use there, as Jung would say, is our senses. We use our sensory awareness to make sense of that. So our body is in a process, is engaged with the physical world. So there are always those two sides of it. And then in the social world, the same thing happens, you know, from a Jungian perspective. It's all about our feelings, how we feel about other people, what's happening between us between our sense of self and other, well, our ego, really, what that we create in order to maintain ourselves of the world of other people. And that kind of feeling into our personal relationships and to ask ourselves questions about where we belong and whether we get enough acknowledgement, whether we give enough acknowledgement to other people, that gives us a kind of understanding of where we are situated and and how we define ourselves and then at the personal level is where we create a self so that sense of our identity who we are is gradually created as we relate as a physical body to a physical world as an ego to the world of other people we sift out of that a sense of our own identity, which is always dynamically movable and changeable and flexible. But nevertheless, we try to kind of hold on tight to it rather than be free in the way we experience ourselves. So we use our process of thinking at that level by looking back over our memories and out of that retrieve ideas about what kind of person we are. But we can also learn to do that in the future again. So we learn to go back to our past memories and then learn new things from it and realize we can change ourselves. We can modify, we can modulate what we want to do with that. And then we come to the fourth dimension, which is that of the spiritual dimension, which is where we use our intuition and where we relate in a kind of ideas way. So we look at the ideas in the world and how we relate to those with our intuition, how we make meaning in the world, how we attach values to things and how we create a kind of worldview where we have a purpose and we have a um, direction of travel. So it's very important to know what our spiritual view is. And if you've read my my book on happiness, you, you know that I don't take that in the religious sense of the word. Of course, many people will fill in that spiritual dimension with a religion and with a dogmatic view. 
but actually you can fill it in with philosophical ideas or with a much more flexible way to think about such things as the opposition between good and evil. So as I'm coming to this notion of, of opposition, I must add that one of the unique aspects of looking at things in a dimensional way from an existential perspective is that we look at it in terms of the tensions at each level, in terms of the paradoxes, in terms of the polarities. So at the physical dimension, we look at the opposition between wanting a lot of life, but having to face the limit of death. At the social level, we just want lots of love and be loved, but we have to also learn to deal with the reality of hatred and anger and aggression. At the personal level, we want to create a really strong identity, but if we make that too tight, we lose our freedom. So there is that opposition between identity and freedom. And at the spiritual dimension, as I already said, there is that opposition between creating a world that is about goodness and yet having to think about what makes things not good or sometimes what made things wicked or bad, what we want and what we don't want. And of course, if we can work with those paradoxes at each dimension, then we become much more alive. We, we stop kind of trying to escape from those shadow sides and those negatives, and we start to play with those opposites. And we begin to realize that we get a lot of value from holding those tensions rather than trying to come somewhere to a middle position or try to escape to one side of that equation and only have the positive things and the good things in life, which is really not possible anyway. But the more elasticity we can find in that and the less fear we can have about it, the better it works on the whole. Absolutely. And in terms of people being able to, to train that muscle, so to say, in terms of how to think across these and get better at that over time, uh, because that is presumably a learned thing. I, I don't know how many people are naturally born at infancy with these frameworks and commitments, uh, you know, uh, inborn already. But for, for those of us who, who need to put in the time and, and start thinking this way, do you think it is helpful to think of where can I intentionally add discomfort and growth across each dimension? Well, yes, I don't think we have to uh, to find it. It's usually already there, isn't it? All of us are challenged at all of those levels all of the time. There is no escaping from it. And it's certainly not the objective to try and control it or master it to such an extent that it isn't in movement anymore. This, this is the secret of life, isn't it? We have to lose things constantly and we have to have difficulties constantly in order to be alive. As long as there is something we have to do, something we have to improve, something we have to solve, something we have to understand, we are engaged with life. And the less we do that and the less we are engaged with life, and the more stodgy and the more stagnant we become. So no, I don't think we have to go out of our way to challenge ourselves. We have to just stop trying to hide from life and trying to avoid having these difficulties and actually just look at what is happening and busy ourselves with it, you know, interest ourselves in it instead of running away from it. And another thing I wanted to, to follow up on in terms of the, the four dimensions is how to think of meaning and if there are any differences of how to think of meaning across these dimensions. And the one idea that was coming to mind, I'd be very interested in, in hearing your response to it. But I, I feel as though, you know, with uh, with each of the four dimensions, there's some 
clear uh, potential sort of unique, so to say, elements of meaning. You know, with the physical, it can be experiential. It can be self-care related. With the social, it can be the interpersonal meaning. Uh, with the identity, you know, the idea of sort of what are the the things I'm committing myself to and uh, things that find that I find purpose in. Uh, whether it's just finding the purpose in the time, in the opportunities at hand, or creating that purpose. And the spiritual meaning is something that's kind of been, as I've been calling more narrative meaning, is how do you piece all of these separate lumps together to then create the overarching story? The only, I guess, to, to start with a very specific question, the one sort of addendum in my mind or a potential addition to that is sort of the the pre-conscious meaning or more of what I've been calling like the evolutionary meaning, mm -hmm. where, you know, if you look at simple organisms that are pre-conscious, they just seem to kind of operate and go towards a very clear objective of survive, procreate, continue. But at some point, presumably, we got consciousness and the ability to make it complicated, uh, uh, hence the, the yeah. whole point. It becomes more and more complex, yes. yes, as we evolve. And as human beings, you know, we do a lot of evolving during our lifetime. So we actually start in that sort of pre-conscious, unaware way. As Kierkegaard put it, we start in a sort of vegetative state and gradually through our difficulties, we become more aware and we start to make more and more sense. And we can take that to ever bigger layers of understanding. So you can create lots of different maps of human existence and Actually, you know, one of the, the things I used to play with a lot decades ago is with a thesaurus, because that is an incredible overview of human language and how we have created all these different concepts and also the antitheses of everything, how everything comes into an opposite. So actually, a thesaurus is a wonderful map of human existence and it shows you how things connect and how they are differentiated from each other, but also how they're similar to each other or how they overlap with each other. But out of that, you can of course simplify things and look at each dimension and how these opposites can, can be found. So to give you an example, I, I like to divide up the physical dimension between what we do in relation to nature, you know, animals, trees, rivers, the air, uh, the environment. And that is all about what we do to protect life and to work with death. Because, of course, in nature, death is an essential aspect of the cycle of things. So that is nature. But at the physical level, there is also our relationships to the humanly created objects in the world. So we are surrounded by objects. And how do we relate to that? How do we relate to money, which represents our work, you know, in terms of an object? A piece of money is a kind of clump of our work that we can exchange for some other object. That's all extremely interesting. And how we use that in order to provide ourselves with satisfaction or pleasure in order to avoid pain, but also how we deal with pain. And then that brings us to another dimension at the physical level, which is that of how we relate to our own body, how we relate to our capacity for being more healthy, more fit, you know, being more careful about ourselves, what we put into ourselves, what we put out, how we stay flexible, and how we also deal with the inevitable moments of illness. The pandemic is a wonderful example of it, you know, where we each had to become alert to our bodies in a new way and become aware of that threat of death, which we normally pretend isn't there in quite a, a real way. And then finally, at the physical level, there is how we relate to the wider cosmos. So there we, we go into the kind of transhuman, you know, the things we can't really grasp properly. 
what is happening in the universe, really? What is it about being a small human being on one planet in this wider cosmos, in this particular galaxy? You know, what, what is it all about? What are the harmonies that are being created? What is the chaos that we allow to happen? What is the entropy that happens in our own lives? So there are lots and lots of layers at each of the dimensions. And you can do this, you know, at the social, at the personal and the spiritual similarly. So that gives you lots of layers to explore and also to understand how they're interrelated and how the more we understand about working and holding the tensions at each of those levels, the better we get at doing it at another level too, and how we can learn from that also. Yeah, and even just thinking with the, the, the idea of finding more meaning and intention from self-care is something that on one level seems very logical of absolutely for us as a as a entity to work well we should take care of ourselves and yet at the same time you know there are so many subcultures that do not promote that as an actual positive at all and actually you're wasting time or or any kind of a more unhealthy view but you know without a good relationship with yourself, how can you have healthy relationships with others? And, you know, like the interconnectedness of every layer of this makes for some fascinating attempts at visualization, but uh, yeah. Yes, yes. I'm always playing with the visualizations. It's so interesting, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Always creating new maps and new ways to represent that so that people can get a hold of it and they can make sense of it. And they don't have to do decades of exploration as I've done in order to sort of put it together in their minds. Yeah, absolutely. And it can always be improved on. And I wonder, you know, you mentioned a couple of different layers from our relationship to to natural to natural creations to human made creations, mm. pain, you know, our own body, money, our relationship with different elements. And just wondering, with the last one that you mentioned, to more of say the cosmic or the transhuman or or these things yeah. that are, uh, you know, no one has the answer to any of those questions for sure. When it comes to to that element specifically. Is there a rather are there interesting ways of exploring this? Do you see that as a pure philosophical endeavor? Is that a, a more of an endeavor of meditation and going inward or, you know, what are I mean, some people I'm sure would argue that psychedelics might be a way of getting there, too. Do you see? Well, sure. So, you know, I'm always willing to explore things with what is relevant to a particular person. I would never prescribe you have to do it this way or you have to do it that way. But of course, over my nearly 50-year career, I have seen a lot of different things. So for quite a while, I worked with the anti-psychiatrists who at that time were experimenting with the use of, you know, non-prescription drugs in working with people who had been diagnosed as schizophrenic. So they would stop using the antipsychotics and start using LSD with them instead because you can't do that these days with LSD so much. But you know, there was a whole time that there was a lot of experimentation. I used to work with Holocaust survivors who were doing LSD therapy with a psychiatrist in the Netherlands and who would re-experience on those trips what had happened to them when they were in concentration camps or in the transports. or And that was really scary. So I came to the conclusion that these are very fragile things, that one has to be very strong in oneself to do that kind of experimentation. And I would certainly never prescribe it or even suggest it to any anybody unless they wanted to do that for themselves. Of course. People have to be able to take responsibility for for these things and only go as far as they can allow themselves to go. Of course, of course. And I, I was wondering also, I guess, in the more natural approaches, have you seen any... Yeah. Is, is it a question of purely just spending the time thinking about these? Is it more of, uh, you know, using meditation or something is different? Oh. Or well, anything. I'm quite up to use anything. But but one of the things I'm a great believer in is that you need to reconnect in on all those dimensions. So you need to do some things on each of those levels. So if a person is always 
hiding away in their house, then it's going to be much, much harder to process stuff than if they go, you know, walk on a beach or they go walk in a wood or they go swim in a lake or they have a dog that they relate to. Or So to have connectivity at the physical dimension makes life a lot richer. And that connectivity needs to be about getting something positive back from nature and from what we ourselves do in the world. So to have skills, you know, to use one's hands, to be able to milk a cow or to be able to to knit or weave or to be able to repair one's electricity or to to mend one's car or to, you know, so many different options. These are all things that give a person a much broader platform from which to make sense of their lives and find meaning. And typically, when a person is in bad shape, you will find that there are holes in their fabric of life, huge holes. Typically, they will not be going for walks. They will not have many skills. They will not be doing sports or physical exercise. They will not be looking after their body very well. So all of that needs to be rebuilt at so many different levels. But again, I would never say do this or do that, but rather find out what gave them pleasure at some point in their lives and then help them rebuild it up from there. And everybody has some things they love to do, some things that they enjoy and that make them feel vital and alive again. And the same is true at the social dimension. You know, people get very cut off from other people. It astonishes me how many young people are completely cynical about human relationships and how terrified they are that all human beings are evil and horrible and nasty, that they will always be bullied and that they don't stand a chance. That is so sad. But, you know, when a person starts looking after people that are vulnerable and weaker than themselves, they will soon discover this is not true. If they start working with people, the elderly, for instance, or they start working with kids who have cancer or something like that, they discover that far from it, they can make wonderful relationships and they can have hope in that dimension again. So many things we need to force ourselves to discover rather than despair and cut off. Yeah. And as we as we get close to the end of our time together today, I definitely wanted to make sure to touch on one other area that I also think is uh, grossly undercovered in terms of both our own relationship with this and and, and the, the greater context around it. But it's the, the role of emotions. And oh. I know there's a, a ton of your work that we could potentially dig uh. into here, but it, it, at least at a high level, why is having a better understanding of being more accepting of and spending the time to learn the nuances of emotion an important endeavor for people to do? Because that's what we are. We are entities that are sensitive, open, and resonant with the world. And the way we resonate and vibrate with the world brings us to life. So when we allow ourselves to feel things deeply, and when I say feel, I don't just mean emotions. I also mean living with our senses in a really much more aware and deep way. And to be more aware of our thoughtful connectivity to the world as well and our intuitive connections. But to be aware of how things affect us and how we in turn through our moods and through the atmospheres we create affect and infect the world around us is to become much more powerfully alive and to use our capacity for aliveness and resonance much more. 
And therefore, I think it is really crucial that people stop being afraid of emotions and discover that every single thing we feel is a positive as well as a negative, that for every emotion there is a sort of counterpart and that really we shouldn't be afraid. So jealousy, for instance, that so many people think is taboo, you know, jealousy, which is to be afraid that something that you value will be taken away from you, is a formidable capacity to be aware that we're not always safe, that we can lose things, and that people might sometimes spy on us or take things from us, is to become vigilant. And so instead of being sort of pathologically jealous, we can learn to be vigilant and vibrate with that and not be afraid of it. And similarly, with anger, we can learn that it is about finding the energy in ourselves to fight for something that matters to us. And we don't have to do that in a destructive way. We can learn to do it in ways that are actually enhancing of our relationships and affirmative of good principles and of values. So feelings are hugely important. They are the core of how we come to know ourselves. And if we don't allow the richness of that whole spectrum of feelings, then we deprive ourselves greatly of our vitality. And I know in my personal experience on the mental health journey also becoming aware of and accepting that the sort of the duality of any type of emotion and the fact that nothing stands on its own, it, it helps realize that, hey, when I'm in my lowest lows and my darkest moments of my depression, recognizing that makes me immediately realize is that there's a path out of this, that there's something that I can do, that it's not as though I, I'm broken or something's just wrong. Just having an emotion or a feeling inside is not the problem. It's sort of the link then between, well, what, what do I do from that emotion and learning how to repurpose that is, you know. Yes, that's right. And it's not just about a path out of it. It's about riding the wave of the emotion. The emotion itself is the wave that we can embrace. So for instance, existential therapists always welcome anxiety. They don't see it as something pathological. They teach people how to befriend your anxiety and to recognize that it is pure energy that is vibrating and going round and round. And if you allow that to go crazy, then it feels like panic. But if you find a purpose for it and you use that energy, then it is more of an excitement. It feels like zest of life. And it you can get used to feeling that your anxiety is actually a friend and a resource rather than something to fear and to run away from. And, you know, that makes life very different straight away. Of course, yeah, and that is such a such a great note to end on, given our conversation. Again, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, I'll make sure to link to your your sites with uh, with New School for Psychotherapy and all your other work anywhere else where you want people to be aware of where they can learn more about you or your work. Sure, that's very kind. Thank you. That was a great pleasure. You obviously very engaged with it, so that was a real dialogue we had. Thank you very much for that. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. On Meaning is created by me, Eugene Leventhal. You can reach out at onmeaningpodpod at gmail.com, or you can find me with the handle of onmeaningpod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for now. Special thanks goes out to Michael Butler, who has been lending a helping hand with some things as I've been getting the podcast started. You can also check out our website, onmeaningpod.com, to learn more information about the podcast or any events that we'll be putting out. Until next time, be well and speak soon. <laughs>